0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Friday, May 19th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. President Trump is headed on a world trip, the Grand Tour. If it's Tuesday, you must be insulting Belgium. The president, apparently not that excited to be traveling abroad, also agreeing with this assessment abroad. So why is he going abroad? CNN's Jake Tapper as former Obama State Department spokesperson, current CNN contributor, Jen Psaki. How how well does the reset
0: work? Can it work?
1: You can have a reset, but there's going to be an ongoing investigation by the FBI. There's ongoing work by the Senate Intelligence Committee. This is related to President Trump himself specifically. It's not related to a bad policy rollout. So it's going to be much more difficult for them. Reset. Reset. Set the Oval Office back to factory settings. Maybe lose all the presets, lose the fake news, lose the believe me and the sad. Do they think reset is sodium pentothal? Do they think by visiting foreign heads of state, America's going to forget the fundamental question, as in the Trump election, to what extent was it influenced by a hostile foreign head of state? And can I just say, yes, I can. I have a podcast, so I will. He's gone first to Saudi Arabia. The Saudis are terrible. Saudi Arabia is a terrible, terrible country. He won't be covering himself in glory by meeting with one of the worst countries of the world. How bad? Freedom House ranks them. All we do is talk about how terrible Iran is, what a bad country they are. They are. They're bad. They oppress their people. Freedom House ranks Saudi Arabia worse than Iran. Or Russia. Trump doesn't downplay Russia, but everyone else points to Russia, talks about what a backward society is, all the oppression, all the theft. Russia ranked much better, much more free than Saudi Arabia by Freedom House. I'm not naive. I know the Saudis are our allies. This is the bargain we've made. This is the bed of oil we lie in. I mean, just take Russia. All the stuff that Putin is doing in Russia to establish himself as a strongman, to punishing dissidents, to spreading misinformation and funding military excursions to advance his regional interest, creating and manipulating oligarchs. He is just trying to get to where Saudi Arabia has been since its founding. And Turkey. Did you see did you see the tape of Erdogan's thugs laying into protesters here in the United States? Listen, if Erdogan devolved Turkey so that every year forward in real time was like losing two years of progress developmentally, the guy would have to live until he's 150 to get anywhere near Saudi Arabia. The Byzantine Empire was a more fair and open place than Saudi Arabia is today. It's not Trump. This has nothing to do with Trump. Trump inherited this policy of absolutely cozying up to the worst of the worst. They do have the oil. But the idea that holding the hand of a guy who can remove your hand for burglary or blasphemy, the idea that that's going to rehab you, well, that's richer than all the petroleum in the GWAR oil field. On the show today, I spiel about a name in the news and who that man with that name named to name names. But first, you thought that dealing with brutal dictators was hard? Try Nick Saban, reforming college sports with former education secretary Arnie Duncan. From 2009 to 2015, Arne Duncan was U.S. Secretary of Education. Before that... For the Harvard Crimson, he averaged 13.3, 4.8 rebounds and three assists a game. Now, maybe that set of statistics is relevant to this conversation because post leaving the White House, he has taken on a few jobs. And one of them is he is working with the Knight Commission, which seeks to get reforms in the areas of college sports. And they've just issued some recommendations about college football. So let's talk about education in college football. Hello, Arnie Duncan. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. I looked it up, by the way. Those stats compare to Kerry Kittles uh, in the NBA.
0: <laughs> you must have been in some vault, boy. Yeah. <laughs> I have no clue on that stuff. So I actually don't even know if you made it up. I hope it's accurate.
1: Yeah. No, no, no. It's the, Those are your career stats. 13.3. Now, we should say freshmen don't play in the Ivy League, so it could have been depressed. But uh, that's well, well, you know, the, it's pretty good The, the stats. honest
0: truth is when I was there, freshmen do play, but oh. I got cut from the team my freshman year. So oh. I played on the JV my freshman year and didn't make the team to my second year.
1: So. And then were you captain by the time you were? senior?
0: Uh, I was. Yeah. So there you go. Perseverance, the Arnie Duncan story. (laughs) All
1: right. Let's talk about college football, though. How well does college football work for college football players?
0: There's a huge variation there. I think for some, it probably, I know it works extraordinarily well. And for some, it works extraordinarily poorly. And at the end of the day, for me, the question is always not what are student athletes doing on the field, and I know that's a you know a huge passion and love and, and was and is my passion and love, but what's happening for them academically in the classroom? And if they are taking real classes, if they are graduating with a diploma that means something, that changes their lives forever. And many, not all, but many of the student athletes are first-generation college goers. And it doesn't just change their future. It changes their family's future for generations to come. If, on the other hand, they are simply out there trying to win games for their college and thereby creating revenue for their college and helping to support the, the, you know, extraordinarily high salaries of their coaches. And at the end of the day, they don't have that piece of paper. They have not graduated. They don't have a diploma Then they have been used by the system. And that for me is untenable.
1: Right. I agree with you. I think the the answer, of course, is it varies. But if I were to ask you, how does college work out for the coaches? You would probably or a reasonable person would say, well, it varies. It's a tough job. But if you're lucky enough to get a head coaching job, you know, Nick Saban's going to make 11 million this year. And if I ask you, how well does college work out for students? You might say some better than others and we need to get more to graduate. But statistics show that your lifetime earnings double. And if I said, how does college football work out for how does college baseball work out for people, I think that there are much better answers. It just seems to me that with that answer being so ambiguous, it's a longer haul than What you're doing and what you're doing is good. But until we could get to empirical answers, which say that actually uh, taking a college football scholarship and being able to graduate college and what it affords people can be demonstrably proven to be a benefit to the participants, college football isn't societally doing its job. It's fine entertainment. I think it's a lot of fun to watch. But I don't know that as a society we could say that college football is a good deal for its players right
0: now. I think if you look across college athletes and athletics, uh, my sense is that, that those who participate in intercollegiate athletics actually graduate at slightly higher rates than the average student. And beyond the graduation rates, which are obviously huge important, I've always said that other than maybe the military, NCAA athletics is an amazing leadership training ground. And I'll tell you, you know, the lessons that I learned being you know, part of a team and learning how to try and work hard and sacrifice and put the team's goals ahead of any personal goals, those are life lessons that have helped me at every stage of my life. So I think it's, it's an amazing place, again, not just to win football games or win basketball games or whatever, but to, uh, to learn lessons and be part of something way bigger than you that, that has lifelong implications. And so where graduation rates are good um, where values are, you know, are people living their values, not talking about them? Um, it's a life transforming opportunity, and I was, I am absolutely one of those student athletes lucky enough to be part of that. But to your to your point, we have to make that the norm, not the exception.
1: They would say that they believe in values like uh, education and um, you know community and goodness, but you're saying the numbers and CFP is the college football playoff structure, the numbers simply belie those assertions.
0: Yes, I mean you can't. Argue. We can we can dispute what they mean, but we can't dispute the numbers. And again, just to repeat, the football performance bonuses based upon wins are fifteen times higher than the academic performance bonuses. And it goes beyond that for me. If you look at the contracts, the coaches' contracts for the vast majority of coaches, not just in football, but in you know basketball and other revenue sports, all the coaches' incentives, like ninety ninety five percent of their incentives in their contracts, again are based upon wins and losses, not yeah. based upon how their athletes are doing in class and are they graduating. And I always say, you know, budgets aren't just numbers on a piece of paper, budgets reflect our values. And if you want to see what we value, see what we invest in. And I want to see a lot more investment on in the academic side, I want to see a lot more investment in the health and safety side, obviously particularly in football where there's some very you know, significant challenges there. And a separate issue, but one that's also of huge interest to me, is just the the lack of diversity amongst football coaches. The rough numbers are that about half of the FBS football players, the student-athletes, are African-American, and 10% of coaches are. So... You know, 50% pool of players, 10% pool of coaches. Yeah. Uh, That doesn't make sense. Yeah. That doesn't make sense. And I think we have to think about these things. And it's tough to talk about race in America, but we have to challenge these, just these givens and behave in different ways. So what levers do you have?
1: I read an article where they talked about you having a bully pulpit with the uh, Knight Commission,
0: but without teeth, how much, how much can you do? Yeah, well, well, we'll see. And uh, when I was Secretary of Education, I went before the NCAA and challenged them very, very hard on the low graduation rates amongst teams going into the NCA basketball tournament, into March Madness, and challenged them to raise those graduation requirements. And everyone said I was crazy, and that would never happen. And guess what? A year later, they did. And actually, the team that had won the national championship at the University of Connecticut actually couldn't play in the tournament the next year. And so, you know, change in in college sports is often glacial. (laughs) I'm often very impatient and pushing. And so you're exactly right. Um, The Knight Commission does does not have teeth. Um, We do have, I think, ability to try and lead from a moral standpoint. And I think it's in their self-interest to do the right thing here. But uh, we hope they do. And if they don't, we'll challenge them.
1: So as you said, you noted the statistics about race. And uh, from what I've seen, it's actually uh, quite a bit higher, at least, you know, closer to 60% than 70% African-American. And uh, like you said, I think 88% of the coaches at the highest level are white. There are a couple of uh, Latino and uh, Pacific Island coaches. But why isn't the market, I mean, peop, if, if, if it is true that teams are so desperate to win, then why doesn't the market just demand that you put the best players? people in charge? You know, why is there a lag in college football that we don't see in professional
0: sports as much and we don't see in college basketball as much? Well, uh, we actually do see them, to be very clear, in college uh, basketball, not to the same extent, and also in professional sports. I, I don't have an... It's a great question. I don't have an easy answer. I would ask a similar question. For years, we didn't have any black quarterbacks, right? Mm-hmm. And a similar pressure there to win, but it took a long time for anyone to start to recruit and train African Americans to be quarterbacks of their teams. And this goes, you know, race and prejudice and bias is a deeply seated part of our country. Why this is so important that I think sports, you know, can be and should be, and I would argue must be a place to break through in some of these areas. And, you know, when Jackie Robinson made it to the major leagues, that didn't open up opportunities for other African Americans to play professional baseball. It opened up opportunities for African-Americans in a much more uh, global way. And if we can't do the right thing in college sports, um, what does that say for the rest of society? And it's interesting just in the language I hear when I talk to coaches and ADs and some of the conversations, people talk about, you know, taking a risk. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't necessarily see it as taking a risk. I see it as making an extraordinarily astute, you know, and smart uh, hire. But that's just when you hear that language um, uh, that, for me, talks to the, the deep-seated, almost unconscious bias that, that we have towards hiring coaches of color to, to, lead, our, to lead our teams and to represent our, our colleges. I guess my last question, you do a lot of other things besides your time with the Knight Commission. You're looking at other educational um, issues in America, right? Yes, I'm doing that. I'm spending uh, a huge amount of my time trying to reduce violence here in my hometown of Chicago. So that's what I'm obsessed with right now.
1: How much is the college sports reform part of it? How much of your time does it take? How How important is it if you achieve reform in college sports? How will that translate to general greater education reform, do you think?
0: Yeah, no, it, it's very important to me. And it's personal. Again, I was lucky enough to, to be a, a beneficiary and, and to be part of this program. Um, you may not know my father worked at the, was a professor at the University of Chicago, which is a Division three school, and was the NCA faculty representative probably for a decade or two. And so going back to my childhood, we would have these fascinating dinnertime conversations about the, the proper role of, of athletics in a student athlete's life. And so this work is very, very personal to me and it's um, lucky enough to, uh, to have been asked to join the the night commission and now to, to co-chair it and I you know work hard at this and I think again it's such the the upside is so positive here' it's so good. And I think about so many young people where this is their their chance to change, you know, uh, family poverty that's maybe been generations uh, in the making and break through and get that diploma and just lead their family to an entirely different place. And being part of a team and being a student athlete uh, will shape them for the rest of their lives. And so I've seen both um, the amazing upside and I've seen the, the dirty underbelly of this as well. And so it's one that is personal and that I'm absolutely committed to continuing to work on, continue, frankly, to try and accelerate the pace of change, which I feel is often too slow.
1: Arnie Duncan, former Secretary of Education, and he's now working with the uh, Knight Commission to try to get some reforms into the world of college football. Thank you very much, Arnie. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Have a great day now. You too. And now the spiel. With a special prosecutor appointed and the deputy attorney general testifying on Capitol Hill in an open session of Congress, the big questions are beginning to be answered. Did Flynn and Manafort collaborate with the Russians? Did Trump know about this? Once Trump learned about this, how did he act? Okay, those are the questions that are not being answered. But here is the one question Rod Rosenstein did answer. How do you pronounce Rosenstein? Good morning, I'm Rod Rosenstein. Turns out, it's Rosenstein. See, I thought it was Rosenstein, but for a while, I thought it might be Rosenstein. And I was a little confused. And then after meeting Rosenstein, the senators came out and here was Dick Durbin yesterday talking to the press. Mr. Rosenstein uh, today answered a lot of questions. So Durbin said Rosenstein. But then a minute later, same guy, Dick Durbin, Illinois. I thought that deputy attorney general Rosenstein faced a Rosenstein and Rosenstein. Rosenstein and Rosenstein and Rosenstein and Rosen... Rosenstein. Now, when it comes to Rosenstein, everyone wants the same thing, a straight shooter. That's all we need, right? And when Rosenstein was appointed, it was reported, Rosenstein, a 27-year Justice Department veteran with a reputation for being a straight shooter, that was NBC, Boston Globe, Rosenstein, a longtime federal prosecutor, has a reputation as a straight shooter. Slate, if Rosenstein is truly the principled straight shooter he's the Picked it as in profiles. But remember the man straight-shooting Rosenstein made the case against? That was Jim Comey. And here's how Mike Pence described Jim Comey during the campaign. I've always found him to be a straight shooter. So who's going to clean up the case of the straight shooter shooting at the knees of the other straight shooter? Well, that is new special counsel Robert Mueller. Here's George Stephanopoulos describing him. As well respected throughout Washington as a straight shooter. So the shorthand for an honest man who will do his job right is that he's a straight shooter. But what we have here is one straight shooter taking out a different straight shooter and having to appoint the third straight shooter untainted by the shots taken at the first straight shooter. Meanwhile, the man at the center of this is a lying huckster who talks about his own bravado, quote, a little hyperbole never hurt. People want to believe that something is the biggest and the greatest and the most spectacular. I call it truthful hyperbole. Straightest shooter ever. It's no wonder that Trump is not particularly cowed by the firing squad that's represented by this specific set of marksmen. And the claim of the honest man being a political straight shooter, the equivalence of those two things, it is so childish and childish in a 1950s sort of way when shows like the FBI as underwritten by the FBI were on TV and honest G-men like Elliot Ness were sold to kids as heroes who could do no wrong. But real life is a morass. The decisions by Comey and Rosenstein, which were at odds with each other, essentially, they weren't motivated by political bias. It's not clear that either one actually acted unethically, given the rules of their fields. Doesn't mean they were wise, doesn't mean they did the right thing, but they probably weren't unethical. If anything, a case can be made that the self-regard, the sense of super ego a straight shooter has, that could lead to bad decisions. They were essentially saying, I can't engage in the normal ethical exercise of weighing these decisions in terms of right and wrong, in terms of impact on people. I am just the human embodiment of the Bureau, the Federal Bureau. Or Rosenstein essentially saying, I can't tell a president with obvious ill intent to go fly a kite because I am a straight shooter. I must go along. I must allow myself to be used, as I know I will but also realize that I have an escape hatch. After I, a political Rosenstein, give Trump cover for a self-serving decision, I know I can break the emergency glass and we will all be saved because there is Robert Mueller and he will do what's right. After all, he must. He's a straight shooter. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Brube totally lays it on the line, calls a spade a spade, tells the chicken when the egg has cracked. Just producer Mary Wilson is a plain-spoken, transparent, matter-of-fact sufferer of Tourette's, if you want to know. it's very brave, that's what I'm saying. Steve Lichtai, chief executive of Slate Podcasts, I'll say this about the guy, what he lacks in guile, he makes up for in style. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. He's both on the level and above board, which is to say I cannot reach the guy. The gist, I'm not going to piss on your leg and tell you it's raining, unless you have a very specific meteorologist fetish. And even if you do, you're going to have to sign a release. Umperu Deperu do peru, and thanks for listening.